Welcome to the Reunion Church Podcast. We're a community following Jesus, seeking the good of our city. We hope today's teaching is both challenging and encouraging. If we could be a resource to you on your spiritual journey, don't hesitate to reach out via our website at reunionnyc.com. Today's teaching text comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1-6. through 6. I myself, Paul, appeal to you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am humbled when face to face with you, but bold towards you when I am away. I ask that when I am present, I need not show boldness by daring to oppose those who think that we are acting according to human standards. Indeed, we live as humans, but do not wage war according to human standards, for the weapons of our warfare are not merely human, but they have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every proud obstacle raised up against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. We are ready to punish every disobedience when your your obedience is complete. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, Reunion. What's up? Warfare. It's going to be fun. All right. I think we need to pray. All right, my Lord, pray for me as I pray for all of us. Lord, you are good, and your mercy, it endures forever and ever and ever. We thank you for your word. We thank you for life. We thank you for strength. We thank you for this church, this community, and the opportunity to unpack and discuss. Lord, have your way in this place. Have your way in this space. Have your way through me. Um, Empower me through your Holy Spirit. Uh, Let this be all for your glory and none of my own. And I pray that every heart and mind be ready to receive. In Jesus' name, let everyone say amen. 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 All right. So, spicy stuff. And um, I don't know, that tends to be the case whenever I preach. So maybe I just got to do something like light and fluffy next time. But for today, we're talking about warfare. And I promise it's going to be good. And we're going to talk about the joy that is uh, on the other end of that. So needless to say, it was a bit of a difficult challenge this week to prepare this one. Of course, you talk about warfare. What do you expect? Warfare. Um, So I was struggling, and I sat down with Russell, and I was like, Russell, this is a hard one. Um, I'm really struggling to extrapolate and, and think about joy and put it into the sermon for this Sunday. And he asked me a question. He said, well, what does Brandon add to the conversation about joy? And leave it to Russell to ask, like, the deep philosophical question, right? So I was like, huh. It made me think. It made me reflect. And I asked myself the question, this joy that I have, this joy that I experience, how did I get it, and why do I still have it? Uh, My life should technically be one of sorrow, right? I've been on the receiving end of some painful moments and some sinful mistreatment in my life. There were many tears uh, that I've cried and no one was there to wipe. And I'll save the sad story, but I've experienced loneliness and depression that made me really question the worthiness of life. Anybody know what I'm talking about? I've been in that, that, that place and I've spent years in that place and thank God for his deliverance that I'm not in that place now, but I've experienced that, and I've been in that, in that location, but after all of this pain, and after all of this sorrow, how is it that I still have the audacity to have joy? I thought about it, 
And I realized through that reflection that it, this joy that I have, it's in my DNA, it's in my culture, it's in my rootedness as an African-American, Caribbean-American man that black people have been able to extract and maintain joy throughout the most adverse of circumstances. Throughout generations and celebrations and tragedies and oppression, we've been a people known to carry on with a prayer in our heart, a dance in our feet, a song on our lips, and the tenacity to overcome. And that is rooted within me just by nature. But I also understand that joy has been my story. Through the tragedies in my life that I've seen, throughout every tragedy in my life, I've seen the goodness of the Lord at the conclusion of each and every one. The sorrow of enduring the pain was eclipsed by the joy of realizing that God answers every one of my prayers. The sorrow of enduring pain was overcome by the joy of the powerful Holy Spirit filling my soul with his power and putting the fragmented pieces of my heart back together. I've got a story to tell and it's full of accounts of God's mercy and grace that leads me to joy. And the beautiful thing about joy is that it's not based on your circumstances like happiness is. No, joy is different. Joy is a soulful, positive gladness birthed from the unwavering truth of who God is and who we are to him through Christ Jesus. Joy is our symbolic gesture that Christ has overcome and sorrow did not have the final say. So today we're going to be walking through a theology and practice for overcoming the sorrow from the battles of this world with joy. Are you with me? Let's go. So what makes it so hard? What makes overcoming sorrow and hardship so difficult? The truth is, church, that there is an adversary, an evil one, the devil, whose goal it is to prevent us from the truth that leads us to overcome. Scripture describes the enemy as uh, an enemy that prowls like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Scripture always also describes the enemy as the accuser of the brethren and the father of all lies. So the sorrow that we experience is often a byproduct of the devil seeking to devour us by throwing lies and accusations our way to get us off course. He'll accuse your self-worth. He'll accuse your identity. He'll accuse your salvation. He'll lie and say you're not loved. He'll tempt you to turn away from God and see your own will and desires. He'll oftentimes use others to lie and accuse you into your own well of sorrow. So how do we respond to these sorrowful accusations in our lives? So we're going to look at a couple of scriptures that will help us navigate these difficulties. And we're going to start with the letter that Paul wrote that we discussed not too long ago. Before we get to 2 Corinthians, Paul established the church at Corinth uh, after a year and a half of a missionary trip. And after he left there, he got word that the Corinthian church had regressed into some unhealthy habits. They were divided by their allegiance to certain leaders. They were torn about food sacrifices to other gods, and they were kind of loose when it came to relationships and sexual morality. Their theology was kind of jacked up. Their gatherings when they got together was chaotic. It was just all over the place. So Paul wrote 1 Corinthians to pull things together, and some people didn't receive that too well. So he followed up with an in-person visit, which he describes as painful. 
And after that, there was a letter that he wrote to them after the follow-up visit that he describes as being a tearfully written letter. So things are kind of tense, kind of spicy between Paul and the Corinthians. Um, but after this, many in the Corinthian church corrected their ways and repented. And Paul sent the letter that we uh, just read, 2 Corinthians, to them to encourage them in the love and also in generosity. But he did it also to defend his ministry. Now, what happened was in Paul's absence, word uh, had gotten back to him that some false apostles had infiltrated the Corinthian church and began to reject Paul and his teaching. There was a competition now, a back and forth for the minds of the Corinthians. And it was Paul versus these false apostles. And he was being called out by these people for a variety of things. One, he was known, this is, this is spicy. One, they said, Paul, you're bold in your letters, but you're timid in person. So basically it was like, yo, you got all this bark, but no bite. <laughs> Yikes. They said Paul was living according to human standards of the flesh. So they accused him of being self-serving. And they also described him as being too unimpressive and not being a strong enough speaker to be a true apostle. <laughs> Y'all thought that the Bible was like nice and cute and everything, right? No, people had beef. So, Paul, the apostle, the one that we regard as like this superhero of, of, of the gospel, and the, most of our New Testament comes from him, he was actually regarded as unimpressive, a terrible speaker, and it was constantly accused and put down. Put yourself in his shoes. Imagine the sorrow of investing into a people and committing to their care, and then the moment you leave, some more qualified, more impressive individual tries to discredit and undo everything you've done and established. And some of those people actually followed them. Paul likened this unto a war, a war for the minds of the Corinthians, but also probably his reputation. This was not a physical war in nature, even though it did seem like he was ready to score up and fight somebody if he really had to. But this was a fight in a spiritual realm. He considered this a spiritual battle that needed to be confronted with spiritual weapons. Let's think about us. Much of the sorrow we're facing day in and day out presents itself as a physical or a natural battle. Physical ailments, health deficiencies, mental crises, interpersonal conflicts, emotional, emotional distress, all of these issues present themselves in physical and natural ways, and therefore, we employ the necessary and essential physical responses to address them. We have doctors and medicine. We affirm that, and we need that. We have therapy and counseling. It's essential, and I encourage it. We have diaries and journals. They're useful, and they are practical. We call out wrongdoing and injustice, which is necessary. We do all of these, and in fact, I affirm them and do them myself. However, if we stop here, and only rely on these methods, we neglect the fact that there are spiritual elements to the battles we face as well. And these accusations and the lies we encounter and the sorrow we experience, they all require additional spiritual responses for their complete reversal and for your overcoming. What did Paul say? Paul said, indeed, we live as humans do, but we don't wage war according to human standards. For the weapons of our warfare are not merely carnal, 
but they have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every proud obstacle raised up against the knowledge of Christ. And we take every thought captive to obey Christ. What were Paul's weapons? We don't see them listed here, but we do know that this was not the only time Paul references using a spiritual battling scripture. In Ephesians, he also lists out the armor that he fought with spiritually. You have it here on the screen. Ephesians 6 and 10 says, Finally, my brethren, put on, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his power. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand on the evil day. And having prevailed against everything to stand firm, stand therefore with your belt on your waist with truth and put on the breastplate of righteousness and lace up your sandals with the preparation for the gospel of peace. With all these, take the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Pray in the spirit at all times in every prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert always. Persevere in supplication for all the saints. Paul highlights here that we're not just fighting physical, natural opponents, but we're up against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Therefore, we don't fight with carnal weapons, but we employ the spiritual weapons of truth, righteousness, the gospel of peace, evil-quenching faith, the knowledge of your salvation, the word of God by the Holy Spirit, and the constant prayer and supplication for all saints. This is how we overcome spiritual battles. So what is the fitting response to overcoming the sorrow of our warfare? There's an expert that we can look to. We have, Dave, we have Paul, but also David was an expert in knowing a thing or two of the sorrow that comes from a life of battling and warfare. See, David fought all different types of battles throughout his lifetime. He had isolation from his family. He had wild animals in the wilderness. Y'all, I don't even like raccoons. Imagine a lion and a bear. Couldn't be David. An infamous giant by the name of Goliath. He battled the lustful desires of his own heart with Bathsheba. He battled the loss of his own child. His king and mentor Saul tried to kill him. I mean, come on. This guy knows a thing or two about sorrow. Would you agree? And each time David found himself in that place, whether it was at the end of his trial or right there in the midst of it, David found himself in a joyful posture of praise. We find much of this expression in the Psalms, a book of songs by various of authors, much of which come from David. And today we're going to take a look at Psalm 30. And as we reflect on this psalm, we're going to go line by line, and I'm sure we can see points of joy that we can apply and connect to our own lives. Psalm 30, and it reads, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. We see God as a redeemer and a sustainer. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help, and you have healed me. 
Not only is God a healer, but he's responsive. Oh, Lord, you have brought my soul up from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. He's a lifesaver. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, but his favor is for a lifetime. God is merciful, and his, he doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. Weeping may endure for the night. Let's read it together. But joy comes in the morning. One more time. Weeping. Weeping may endure for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Twenty saying, I know you've been crying. I know you're in pain. I know it seems like your tears and your prayers have gone unanswered, but I want to encourage you today that your weeping is not the final destination. Joy is available and on the horizon. Verse 6. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face. I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cry. And to the Lord, I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my keeper. This is a strong point here because David is talking about how he pleaded for the Lord, pleaded for mercy. Has anybody been so low that you pleaded for the Lord to rescue you from your sorrows? Has sorrow ever gripped your heart so tightly that you beg of God to make it go away? I'm so glad that we have a God that answers. Let's go to the joy part. Verse 11, you have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. If you're wondering where the running and the jumping and the shouts for joy come in, here it is. This is why this is the Brandon to Pentecostal scripture right there. The power of our loving Father, our faithful Father, makes the exchange from mourning into dancing, from sackcloth to joy. Now I hear you. I hear what you're saying. Okay, Brandon, it's nice and everything. It was good enough for Paul. It was good enough for David. But what about me? Are you telling me that I need to be like Paul and that I need to be like David? I'm not not telling you to be like Paul or be like David because there's clearly a thing or two that we can learn from them through the scriptures. But that's not the point that I want you to walk away with today. I don't want you to walk away thinking that the, the, the main focal point is Paul or the main focal point is David. I want you to walk away knowing about Jesus. I want you to walk away knowing how the joy of David and the warfare of Paul can be made possible in your life and that comes by way of none other than our Savior, Jesus Christ. The power of our loving, faithful Father makes this exchange from mourning to dancing. The exchange from sackcloth to joy. The exchange from death to life. And the exchange from lost to found. From the moment we were born into this sinful world, 
We have been impacted by the sorrow that evil and brokenness have inflicted upon us. Our sin separated us from the closeness that we once had with God. And we needed a savior to step in to be available for the whole world. God showed us just how much he loves us by sending his only son, Jesus the Messiah, to be the perfect sacrifice that we needed. That anyone who puts their faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins shall have their relationship with God the Father restored. It's a matter of faith, not perfect behavior, not perfect church attendance, not a 10 out of 10 on your Holy Ghost report card, but faith in Jesus Christ. And he died so that you can have eternal fellowship for the Father. But the major point of that whole story and the key to it all is that Jesus didn't stay dead. Three days after he was placed in a tomb, he was raised back to life and is alive with the Father even as we speak. And his death brought us cleansing and reunion, no pun intended, with God through Christ Jesus. But his resurrection brought us hope and joy to overcome through Jesus Christ. Jesus said something to his disciples that I think is really impactful right before his death on the cross. Jesus knew that it was about to be a horrible and painful and sorrowful time for his disciples. He was going to die. It was going to seem like his enemies won. And the disciples were about to lose their leader and seemingly all hope. Let's look at John 16. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered her baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. Jesus uses childbirth as a metaphor for the joy we experience when we see his face at his return. Now, ethically, I cannot gloss past this scripture without naming some very critical truths. The first is that Jesus is fully human and anatomically male, so he is making a metaphorical description of a childbirth that he will never experience. Now, while that is true, we also acknowledge that Jesus is fully God. And being fully God, he is fully knowing and possessing the totality of all likeness in his identity. So from there, we can assume that Jesus is God enough to understand the totality of all human experience across the gender spectrum. And he uses that wisdom to make a valid comparison to the joy that his return will bring. The second truth that we have to name and, and exist in the tension of is that Jesus describes an experience of childbirth that not everybody gets to enjoy. 
Every pregnancy and every delivery does not yield the joy of a healthy child that makes you forget the pain. That's a truth that we can't ignore. If that resonates with you in any way, I dare not offer some cliche statement or some Christianese phrase that, that pours salt on the wound. I simply offer the truth that even the deeply rooted sorrow is included in the comfort that Jesus' power has the capacity to heal. Um, and if you're there now, or even if you find yourself in that moment, he's with you through the grueling stages of what that process may be like as you go through that stage by stage. We love you. Amen. So for every believer and every follower of Christ, you are not praying or crying to a God that is dead, gone, or absent. You are praying to a Savior that is alive, mediating on your behalf, and advocating for you in heaven, and this is the joy that we carry in salvation. This is the joy that we carry in warfare, and this is the joy that we carry in the face of sorrow. There is no sorrow that can compete with that truth. There is no power that can compete with our God. And in our risen Savior, Jesus Christ, we have joy. There will come a time when the sorrow of this earthly life will be over. And what happens at that point? For those that have placed their faith in Jesus Christ, this temporary joy that we see on earth becomes multiplied and permanent. The joy we have in Christ on earth is nothing compared to the joy we'll experience with Christ in heaven for all eternity. Outside of the guarantee in Christ, the other option is permanent sorrow and separation from the Father that is far more sorrowful than the trials that we experience on earth. But thanks be to God, the truth is that doesn't have to be our reality. We have access to a joy that is far greater than sorrow through Jesus Christ who conquered death, who conquered sin, and who conquered the enemy who accuses and lies. Jesus is our truth, and Jesus is our joy. And not only did he come to save, but he's returning, and he's coming back again to restore all creation back to the Father. So in closing, the weapons that we utilize, they're not human weapons. They're spiritual weapons that are empowered by Christ to pull down the strongholds of accusation and sorrow that are waging war against our lives and our minds day in and day out. Every accusation is demolished by the truth of Christ. Every lie and every opposition, we declare the name of Jesus over it and cast it down because at the end of the day and at the end of all eternity, Jesus is victorious over it all. And that is the reason why we have joy that is greater than sorrow. Let's pray. Lord, the reality is that sorrow is present and it's an actual part of what we will experience in life. The truth is that you have overcome the world and all the sorrow that lies within it. 
So while we have these micro experiences of sorrow, these micro experiences of tragedy, these micro experiences of pain, this micro ex these micro experiences of accusation, I pray that your truth be exalted over it all. Lord, I pray that our faith be renewed in the moments where sorrow seems way more tangible and close. Lord, I pray that your proximity to us be something that we are constantly reminded of and experience. Lord, you are risen from the dead. You are seated at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us even now. And even the perils of this life cannot conquer that truth. So we rest in that. We acknowledge that. And we thank you for being our loving Savior. It's in the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen.